This is Radio ANA, broadcasting on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We are Annalise and Arnie, talking about community and individual responses to harm, transformative justice, accountability, safety, support and healing and prison abolition within and challenging dominator culture. We would like to acknowledge Aboriginal elders past and present and to acknowledge and honour the resistance of First Nations people across these lands. We just listened to Darkness by Katie Day. Hi, welcome to Radio ANA. In this episode, we interview Scott Mills about invitational and collaborative approaches when working with men who use family and intimate partner violence. 
While we want to acknowledge that people of all genders use family and intimate partner violence and that violence and abuse occurs in heterosexual and LGBTIQA plus relationships, we know that in heterosexual relationships, the overwhelming majority of abuse is enacted by men towards women. In this episode, we will be talking about working with men who use violence and controlling behaviours in heterosexual intimate partner relationships. Hi, Scott. Would you like to introduce yourself, the land you are on, and what brings you to working with men who use family violence? Hi, Annalise. Um, Thanks for having me. The land I'm on is the Wadawurrung land of the Kulin Nation, and um, I'd like to acknowledge elders past, present and emerging, but also particularly young people who are emerging into the community in leadership roles. And I think also I think it's really important to acknowledge the impact of colonisation on the Aboriginal community and in particular on women and children impacted by family and domestic violence. The question of what brings me to the work, that's a... Geez, that feels like a big question. I think I fell into it more than anything else um, and I've stayed in it ever since. I think over time it's it's changed. I think I'm really invested in the work in terms of, you know, improving, hopefully improving the safety of women and children and developing practice has always been something I'm really keen on in in terms of supporting new practitioners and that kind of keeps me invested um, in the work. And I guess going going on from that, you know, like over time, what ethics or frameworks do you find useful when exploring accountability and nonviolence with men who use family violence? Accountability has always been a word that I've really grappled with in the work. It feels like it's one of those words that we throw around a lot in our work. Um, it gets used in policy documents and it's it's kind of, you know, that men, that men need to be held to account. And I don't know what that means. I, I <laughs> um, And so for me, I, I guess I think about it in terms of what does it mean for the men we work with? What does it mean for individual families and women and children experiencing violence? I, I want to work with the men that, I, that I'm with. I, I don't want to do things to them. And when I think about holding them to account, it's something I do to them, even though I don't really know what that is. You know, so from a from a framework perspective, I I guess I I approach a work more of a I'm walking with, you know, I'm I'm going to walk with you and I, I'm going to invite you to to discover what accountability looks like for you and what that means for your family. I don't see my role as kind of forcing change or but to encourage change and to encourage being different in in um, that man's relationship in a safer way. Hopefully I'm working with him to so that he's, he gets to that place where his family are safer. That's the most important thing. That question around frameworks, there's, a, you know, all these modalities we can use when we, we work with people, you know, not we're not doing therapeutic work or counselling, but there is an element of, you know, do we do CBT work and, you know, all those types of things. And I think they're all kind of applicable in different ways. But for me, what's most important is how do I position myself in the work? How do I see the client through that lens and how do I work with him to a safer place? So 
I'm really aware that how I thought about the work 10 years ago is different to how I thought about it five years ago and it's different to how I think about it now and I imagine in another five years it'll possibly be different again. So, um, you know, being open to that is the most important (laughs) framework in many ways. When you talked about working with men and, like, inviting men to sort of reflect on these sorts of things and, and hoping that that will increase safety of women and children, I wondered if you could share a bit, like, what does that look like? I guess for me what it means is actually listening to the men I'm working with. They often don't feel like they've been listened to or heard. Now, I'm, I'm not sure whether that's true or not, and I, I don't necessarily get caught up this idea of finding out what the truth is and getting to the to the bottom of the truth. But I'm not interested necessarily in the truth. I'm interested in um, what are the things that he is able to identify in the conversation that he might like to change. And in that, I'm, ris- I'm listening really attentively, I guess, for, you know, I kind of call them hooks, where uh, opportunities where he, talk- he is talking about his violence, even though he might not be thinking that he is and bringing them into the conversation to encourage that reflection and that kind of the consideration of, of those behaviours and the impact they're having on, on the men. So I'm not necessarily shutting him down, and I know there are a lot of practitioners that, that would do that. I, I truly believe that if we want people to listen to us, we better listen to them, particularly for, for men who have gone through a court system or a you know, really a patriarchal kind of dominant system that's reinforced this idea of win or loss. And they're coming into the space kind of armed, if you like, with that same expectation. It's really important that I move away from that and I don't reinforce that dynamic because you're just in, in opposition to from the very start and you don't get anywhere with that. I don't want the men leaving thinking about me and my behaviour. I want them leaving thinking thinking about themselves and their behaviour. And so that means me listening to them and hearing some things that maybe I'm uncomfortable hearing, descriptions of their, their family members, the court system, other people that are really, you know, oftentimes troubling. But in that hearing, I'm, I'm able to kind of, hopefully I'm able to weave in that invitation to, to consider what he's saying and to consider what he, he's thinking about others and how that might change and what might change might look like for him. And this might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but I think you really need to be aware of what's happening for yourself in the space. If I'm having a reaction to what a man's saying, if I'm having an experience and I'm not aware of what's happening for myself, chances are I'm going to get caught up in particular elements of that story that are, that are going to be unhelpful and are going to be hard to shift. So, that's probably the, the most important part from my perspective, really positioning myself in that space in a way where I'm attentive and lis- listening for those, those opportunities where you might get a, you know, a five or ten minute narrative from a client that's really critical of the system and really critical of their partner. But in that, there'll be particular words that I can use to then feed back and really ask him to dig a little bit deeper about what he meant when he said particular things. And rather than getting caught up on all the negative parts of the narrative, 
and trying to shut that down. I'm more focused on the opportunities in the narrative and trying to open them up. And I think that can often be a, for new practitioners or, you know, maybe even some old practitioners, it's easy to get hooked into that negative narrative. And then it just becomes a kind of oppositional dynamic, which is really hard to shift. You know, for many of the men we work with, they kind of live in that space. They, they live their lives in, in a quite an oppositional kind of way in many, in many spaces. So why would I want to go down that path again with them and just reinforce that dynamic and then step into a kind of power over position myself to, to dominate them and we're just kind of reinforcing all the, all the dynamics of family violence in my practice. I'm doing to him what he's doing to his family members. I want to move away from that and create a, create a way of being in our relationship, hopefully, that, that might be helpful for him to be able to, to use. What are the kinds of things that you're wanting to explore, you know, if those are brought up? We have this belief that the men don't want to talk about their violence, and I don't think that's necessarily true. I, but, you know, specifically if it's about particular acts of violence, I'm looking for him to kind of talk about things like he lost it, you know, statements like that, because you're really getting into the behaviour. If he just lost it, for example, you're getting to his use of violence and that creates a whole opportunity to kind of inquire around what that is, what that looks like for him, how were other people positioned when when that happened for him, what was their experience of that. And then you're kind of starting to get to a space where that, that idea of is that kind of working for you and is that working for the people around you in your life? And once you've got that, that that has come out in the relationship we're building, you've got it as a reference point to go back to. And, you know, I would do that not regularly, but there's many opportunities to kind of get back to that. How did that feel for those people around him? What's that like for him to know that he's, for example, he's scared his children? You know, what's that like for him? And the opportunities that come out of that, of that you know, that that acknowledgement of of behaviour and impact of behaviour, that's where I think the opportunity for change is. You know, is that aligned to his values? Does he want that in his relationship? Does he want that for his kids? When you were saying that, is it aligned to his values? Do you have any advice for how we might be exploring someone's values with them? Yeah, very gently, I guess. You know, one of the things, um, the way I think about it is what would work for me? Um, I've been a client, not not in a family violence service, but in a therapeutic space, you know, off and on over the years. And I think about what works for me for um, counsellors, therapists. And the men are no different to me, really, and I imagine to all of us. We all want the same things. The relationship we build with that person becomes absolutely critical. You know, all the evidence around counselling and therapy is, you know, talks talks about the, the importance of the relationship. So building that is, is a kind of critical part in some ways because if you don't have the relationship, you can't have the conversation in a way that has any meaning. So you have to do that. You know, for me, it really is about thinking about what would, and I don't actively do this, but thinking about myself and my own journey and what have I needed from people at different times? And it really has been some compassion, the capacity to listen, listen attentively, to acknowledge, you know, to have honest conversations and to give honest feedback. 
they're the things I kind of hold on to as much as I can in my practice. The idea of values is once I've got that relationship, I can actively explore that, you know, and, and the men we work with, they talk about things like respect and integrity. They're all the values we all hold. You know, one of the things that I think is also really important is they don't see themselves as violent and abusive. They do not see themselves that way. So I'm not going to talk to them as if they are because they they just don't see themselves in that way. So they see themselves as respectful. They they believe in equality. You know, these are the values they hold. It's about really digging down and kind of creating that dissonance between their values and their behaviour. And if they're able to identify the differences between those things and that can also become that really positive path forward for them, hopefully. In exploring values, exploring that dissonance, and you spoke about, you know, the impact of these behaviours on family and working with men through that, what do you think is made possible? Look, it's interesting because it's going to be different for every single man. It's also going to be different for every partner and children. But I suspect what is really common is, you know, the men, the men come in and the, the, the real challenge for us is they come in and in their eyes there's not much wrong for them in terms of they don't have to change too much. So, But for their family's experience, they want them to change. They want, them, they want to feel safer. They want him to take responsibility for the things that he does and the harm that he does. Um, so change is the most important thing. So, you know, you, you might work with a man for six weeks in group, he drops out of the program and people would go, well, that's, you know, that's a poor outcome. But in that time, you've been able to work with his partner, you've been able to support her and him through the process of her leaving safely in that relationship. Now, is that a good outcome? Yeah, I think I think it is a good outcome. Perhaps things haven't changed in terms of a whole lot of things for him, but it's changed for her. She's felt safe enough through that process to be able to leave. So, you know, right through to the other end of the spectrum where you're working with men who have had wholesale change in their lives are really different in their relationship, not just in terms of their use of violence, but a lot more emotionally present in their relationship, able to hold space for their children, hold space for their partners, um, not just safely but also, you know, with vulnerability and, and, you know, with real genuine kind of emotional connection. That's also you know, that's obviously a terrific outcome as well. So there's every and there's everything in between that, isn't there? I'm sure you've both seen it yourselves. Scott, a lot of the work we do is not just supporting men's partners, but also their children and also other family members as well who might be impacted. What does it mean like when we talk about centering the voices and experiences of people affected by uh, men's violence? And how do we do that? How do we centre those experiences and voices whilst also working to engage men? So seeing their humanity, their complexity in that as well. I think one of the challenges is we often think about it as an either-or proposition, that, that we're either working for the safety of women and children or we're, or we're just working with him. And I, I, I think they can be absolutely aligned in terms of, of good practice it's an interesting one because uh, quite often we think about only one or the other and when we think about, well, I'm going to work with this man 
in a supportive way to encourage change and to support change. I think that's absolutely about improving the safety and well-being of that man's partner, who I, you know, as a practitioner, I'll never speak to, I'll never meet. Um, you know, we might have contact through family safety contact, but that's not always the case. You know, the relationship might have ended 12 months ago. He's not in a new relationship. So we're also working, hopefully, for the safety of a future partner. So me working with him in a way that is going to encourage that kind of reflection and, and what he wants in a relationship and the impact of his current behaviours, you know, they're, they're causing harm, but are they working for him as well? vast majority of men we work with don't want to be seen as being violent and abusive. They don't want to abuse and, um, and harm their partners. And those men that do probably shouldn't be in our type of program. They're, they're a different kettle of fish altogether. Those men who actively plan their violence, it's tactical, those types of things, they're probably not, you know, for a community-based service response. So, you know, I, I think for most men, we, it is really about tapping into their want to not be violent and their desire to be supportive of their family because when you go back to those values, they're often connected to their family. What are some ways or, you know, what does it look like to sort of bring in some of those voices of women and children into the conversations that you're having um, with men? Well, there's multiple multiple ways you can do that, I guess. Literally asking what was your, your partner's experience of, of what happened? Tell me what was the expression on her face? Where did she go? What, what, what was the impact on her? Was she injured? Literally asking about her experience brings her into the room. From a group perspective working with men, there's multiple ways you can, you can bring partners and um, children's experiences into the room. You know, whether that be a role play, I've done men's behaviour change groups where you you can literally ask a men to put their partner's name tag on and run the group as them being their partner in a family violence support group, which is really, really confronting for the men. And you speak to them about and you ask them about her relationship with him and what's changed and what's different. What What did you love about him to start with? What's changed over the years? The transformation of the men in that space is really powerful and that is all about bringing in their partner's experience into that space and for them to put themselves in those shoes that perhaps they're not great at. That's one of the things that, that we, we have to be aware of. We, we talk about men being socialised in particular ways, you know, why would we think they'd be good at these things? Why do we think men would be good at empathy? We're not necessarily socialised to it. But then when it comes to their use of violence, we expect that they're going to be able to put themselves in somebody else's shoes. We expect that they're going to be able to stand up in court and explain their behaviour as they step into a space where they have to bow to someone and then explain their behaviour with some sense of understanding. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing we expect of them, I, I think, the more we work with them, we're helping to build that understanding, their emotional understanding of themselves, which has probably been pretty limited, I'd imagine, throughout their lives. Yeah, it's interesting. The times that I've done those kinds of explorations with men, very visceral empathy-building ones where, you know, men either 
speak as though their um, their children or their partners have probably been the, where the most kind of profound shifts occur. But mm. to get to that, I think there does need to be an amount of trust in the room. And thinking about that kind of trust in the room, are there other types or kinds of support so for example like mental health stuff or you know if men have other relationships with alcohol or drugs or homelessness or anything kind of going on in men's lives so supports that you yeah think are useful or necessary for someone to be able to engage in in change work I think it's interesting we kind of have this one size fits all model don't we of the men's behavior change group and you know, I, don't, I just don't think that's that's the case. You know, the, the groups are, are great for a, for a lot of men, but also for some men um, going into a space with a group of other, other men is incredibly challenging for them. And for men who have had their own trauma experience or, or history of abuse, do we then want to put them into a group with a whole group of men who are disclosing their own use of violence and abuse against children? It's a really tricky thing. I, I think... One of the great things in Victoria is the, the kind of a, adopting a case management approach and being able to, to do more of that, the alcohol, drug work. The reality is if somebody's homeless, are they going to be working on their use of violence and abuse? You know, it's not impossible, but it's, you know, we go back to old Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, you, you know, you need to put a roof over your, your head. You need to feel secure as a starting point. Same with mental health and drug and alcohol use and gambling and trauma and all those complexities that people have. I think we can work in conjunction with the, that support, but if we leave that stuff untended and un, unaddressed, then I think we, we do our clients a disservice. But, you know, obviously we're doing a disservice to the women and children in their lives who are impacted by their behaviour. Um, I think that's the challenge for us as a sector, to continue to kind of provide those those responses and to broaden those responses um, so we can then do the group work in a much more effective way. Scott, when we were talking about the experiences of women and children and other family members, a common presentation of men when they first start speaking with us is that they are often minimising, you know, blaming often not acknowledging their use of violence. But we are also presented with many bits of information when we're working in a in the service sector. So we're often presented with police reports or, you know, IVOs and other narratives. What what do you think is useful, a useful amount of information for practitioners to know? I, I guess I, I find always find that balance really interesting. How much do I want to know and how much do I not want to know? I guess in terms of the minimising minimizing and blaming and denying, the way I think about that is, you know, we all do that. <laughs> We're not, um, yeah, there's, kind, there's this kind of presentation that, you know, this is what men who use violence do, you know, because they're embarrassed or ashamed or they don't want to acknowledge or take responsibility. I do it. Um, <laughs> when I've done things I'm not proud of, so in that regard, it's not an unusual thing. So I don't kind of get caught up on that as a, as a problematic presentation. I don't know whether I've ever really found the balance of how much I want to know and um, how much I don't. Sometimes I know too much and, you know, based on um, particular experiences of, of women and children and, 
you know, for example, for me, violence towards pets, I have a really strong reaction to that. And, and I've got to manage myself when I when I see that. And same, same as violence towards children, it, it's a really almost a visceral response in some ways. I've got to manage that. But do I bring that into the room? Do I, do I present to this man who's telling me that, you know, not much has happened? Do I say to him, well, I've got this information that says this, this and this. And is that going to be useful in terms of moving him towards a position of change? And I'm not sure that it is. In fact, I'm pretty sure it isn't for me to be bringing in third-party information. I'm, I'm going to tend to work with what he gives me and really try to identify, have the knowledge of what's potentially happened in, in the back of my head, but work with him to kind of get that information out of him, not through a kind of interrogation, but through a conversation. That's kind of, that's my goal more than anything else. And then what do I do with that? Do, do I, you know, this, this is the thing, do we think that they need to disclose that behaviour before they can change? Is that what we think, that they need to own it before they can change and they need to say it? Or is that what we want? Often when I'm observing and giving feedback to practitioners, I'm often <laughs> asking them whether they were searching for a confession because yeah. that's kind of what it sounded like. I think it's really interesting because I think that's kind of what the court sets up people to do as though a confession equals accountability and as though without that confession, then someone can't actually undertake a change journey. Like, of course, we want people to be able to identify and and see that they're harmful behaviours and over time and and recognise the patterns of that. But I kind of see that that is the journey. If people came in that way, that that's, yeah, of course, that's wonderful. And that person has done some self-reflective work. It's a process, isn't it? You know, change is a process. So I don't anticipate that I'm going to have a man who walks in and says, you know, this is what I've done. Patriarchy has had this impact on my life. I've been poorly socialised to deal with my emotional experience. And um, now I'm fully aware, after going through the court system, I'm now fully aware of the impact of my behaviour and what I need to do to address it. That just doesn't <laughs> yet to see it. And interestingly, if that was a presentation, I'd probably either go, well, you don't, you don't need to be here or I'd be really worried <laughs> and my, my risk lands would go up uh, more so in some way. Maybe there's something around our expectations of being aware of our expectations and what we project on to the men we're working with, that they should be X, Y, or they shouldn't do this, this, or this. I wonder if that's that's part a big part of it is, you know, because we're aware of the harm and the impact that their behaviour has, um, we then expect that they're going to be aware of the same. And often they're not because they don't want to ask themselves those questions, I, I, I think, because they're difficult questions to ask yourself, you know, the, the harm that you've caused others. None of us are comfortable with those questions. You know, what, what's the harm that we've caused to other people in, in our lives? So why would we expect them to be comfortable with it? Yeah, and I think there's so much interesting stuff with that, like, um, you know, expectations of confession, expectations of truth, and also the assumption I guess that people are like deliberately concealing things and they know exactly mm. what's going on and that it's very intentional all the time, like consciously intentional, that sometimes maybe is 
something that's projected onto people. And I think it's really interesting to see how that plays out sometimes in the community, you know, in the sort of expectation of confession, of immediate public apology, you know, and it makes so much sense for people to want those sorts of things. But also, yeah, interesting, I guess, to explore that question about is it possible? It's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that we that we ex- we want the men to be accountable, whatever that means for them, but we don't see demonstrations of it in in public life. You know, we we have politicians who obfuscate, who avoid responsibility, and you know, you know, people who are seen as leaders in the community consistently um, avoid accountability. But then we we see men who use violence and abuse, and we go, well, they need to be accountable. Why are they different to any of us um, in the broader community? And this is where we need to head, I think, is starting to think more about that whole of community response. And if we're not demonstrating it in our lives, in the way we go about our lives and the way we go about, about our work, for organisations who work in this space and the leaders of those organisations are demonstrating behaviours that are problematic, you know, abusive, controlling, then aren't we just reinforcing exactly what the men are doing in their relationships, which we're identifying as violent and abusive? We've talked a little bit about this, but are there other common things that you see that people do that kind of gets in the way of our work with men who use violence? One of the things that I often hear is people saying, oh, well, he's too resistant um, or they are too resistant. What are your thoughts on when you hear people say this? I think, you know, when I think about resistance in the work, you know, I'm, I'm much more interested in my resistance or the resistance of practitioners in the work rather than the men's resistance. You know, I, I think Alan Jenkins speaks really well of, of that idea of using resistance as a way, a mechanism for change. But, you know, what, what consistently over the years, what I see practitioners often do when they start working with a man who's identified as, as resistant is then work around him, then avoid, avoid that man in group or in other spaces, avoid working with him, move away from his resistance, move further away from him, don't move towards him. The relationship becomes real. He doesn't trust the practitioners. The practitioners don't trust him, you know, and then six, ten weeks into the group, you know, the practitioners are saying he's not taking responsibility, he's too resistant and reluctant and he needs to be exited from the program, you know, and, and the practitioners haven't moved towards him at any particular point and, you know, encourage some exploration with him and that's, that's the I think the most important thing with resistance is actually how do you move towards it rather than moving away from it? How do you kind of identify that potentially the strengths in that? It's really hard though because it's it's often um, it puts you in an uncomfortable position, which is what makes it challenging. So, you know, when we have that resistance, what we tend to do is want to want to fight it. We want to push against it. And it just reinforces the resistance from, from the client or we avoid it altogether. And that's not helpful at all either. So, yeah, I, I think a big part of it is us identifying ourselves in this space as practitioners, identifying our own resistance and reluctance to work with particular clients and particular presentations and how we can 
kind of move towards them rather than away from them. We've been talking to Scott about ethics and frameworks in working with men using violence, and we'll go back to the interview now. Thinking about other things that people might do or think in working with men that get in the way of that kind of journey, I suppose, towards change. How else do you see, I guess, collusion showing up in these spaces? I think collusion's you know, we have that traditional understanding of what it is. It's kind of reinforcing that, uh, the victim blaming, you know, the denial, We, you know, feeling sorry for or, or those types of things, which is which is obviously incredibly problematic. You know, it was interesting speaking to one of the Duluth trainers a few years ago and they were essentially saying that um, any time you're not working towards encouraging, inviting him to reflect on his behaviour, chances are you're colluding. Um, because, you know, that's what our job is. That's what we're there to do. So if we're building a relationship to then have the difficult conversation and to have the, you know, to, to kind of have had some of those explorations that are going to be more challenging, then that's that's really purposeful and it has, has a point. You know, and I, I think when I started, um, I was so paranoid about colluding <laughs> with clients and I was, so scared that people would think I was colluding with other men that I just argued with them about their behaviour and this is what they should do and this is the impact it's having and, you know, and I thought I was doing a great job because I wasn't colluding with them and I was holding, you know, in my mind I'm holding them to account. But I don't think I was improving anyone's safety or well-being. I, I think all the men I'll, you know, not all the men, I don't, don't know it was all, every client I work with, but the idea that they left they left and were going home to their partner or to their family members having that experience of me and that that would improve their, their family members' safety, you know, that's incredibly naive. But that was how paranoid I was about collusion. But that oppositional stuff, you know, the, the, the oppositional approach is also really collusive because his narrative is he's been through a system that I'm not going to be listened to. The system's got it in for men. No one wants to hear my side of things. And then we get into the relationship and we don't listen to him. He doesn't feel heard. All his narrative about the system and, and the response he's going to get has just been reinforced by our approach. So I, I think that, you know, and there's, there'd be some contention in that. There'd be some people who would go, no, that's definitely not collusion. But from my perspective, I, I, I want him thinking about his behaviour. I don't want him thinking about me. I don't want him thinking about the service system and how we've provided a really poor response and haven't listened to him or heard him. I want him to think about his behaviour. Um, and if I'm anything that's not that, perhaps I'm not doing what I should be doing in my practice. 
Yeah, I remember when I first started doing this work also being really confused. You do get an opportunity to observe many different practitioners. So, you know, I'd observe facilitators who were really power over and then I'd I'd observe like people engaged in dialogue. Then I remember doing lots of self-reflection about like, you know, when I'm arguing, does that open up self-reflection for me? And Mm. I just think when I'm engaged in argument with someone, I am definitely not self-reflecting. I'm going, I am going to self-defend. Like that's what I'm trying to do is like defend my point and my point of view (laughs) and be right. You know, the times when I'm able to self-reflect is when um, I feel heard, is when, you know, I am engaged in conversation, respectful conversation with someone where I know that they're kind of in, in, in it with me. That's when I'm better able to self-reflect. And I think that, that, that extreme, if you like, that op- opposition and, and that collusive kind of thing often plays out in, in the group facilitation where it, it's often in reaction to the other facilitator. Um, so they seem really collusive. So my job now is to really confront and challenge the men. Um, and, you you know, the facilitators just move further and further away from each other, which becomes obviously, you know, the men then pick a side and um, <laughs> becomes a little bit disastrous. Are there other things that you see people commonly do in their work with with men that maybe also gets in the way of that journey? Well, I think that we mentioned it earlier, but that idea of getting caught up in the truth and getting getting to the bottom of it and getting fixed on that. And, and you know, as Annalise said, the, the kind of the, the interrogation and the confession and having to do that becomes in, incredibly, that, that gets in the way of, of good practice, I think. I guess for me, I don't, I don't really think about the truth necessarily. I'm not. I'm not interested in it. I suspect I'm never going to know exactly what happened. I, I, I might have a narrative that's come, but I, I don't get caught up in that. I find that that's really unhelpful, and you see that I think from pra- practitioners quite often getting caught up in, you know, the the real getting to. I need to get to the bottom of this. The other the other part of it is. You know those those bigger picture things we bring into the work around. Do we believe change is possible? If we believe that change is not possible, how are we going to respond? You know, and some of the things you've talked about on previous episodes, the idea of intentionality. If we think that the men we work with, all every act of violence is a, a premeditated act to get power and control in their relationship, how can we possibly have a relationship? that is going to lead to change if we think that's what every man we work with is. Not saying that that doesn't exist. It does, but it's a, a very small percentage of, of, of the men that, that come through our doors. Our sector seems to have taken on the language of grooming, for example, which is I find incredibly problematic that they're somehow in their explanation of what happened, they're trying to groom me if we're thinking in those ways every single interaction, wow, how can we possibly have a, have a relationship that's going to lead to kind of a walking with a process of supporting them to change? I don't know whether we can. Something that Arnie and I often talk about is the usefulness of having an understanding of family violence that's societal 
um, so that, you know, we're all, all of us are recruited into patriarchy and entitlement. Um, we're working with men who were recruited into male entitlement from very young, from when, essentially when they're born. And so they're learning ways of being in terms of being a man in this world. What do you think the usefulness is of that when we're working with men who use family violence rather than seeing it as an, yeah, an individualised understanding of family violence? Well, I think it places us in the same continuum, really, and I, and I, I think that's a reality of for all of us. We are all on that, you know, continuum of privilege and entitlement, whether we like it or not. Um, we all exist on it, and you know what I why I, I think positioning it as a social and a societal impact that allows greater possibility of change, not just in individuals but also across hopefully across communities and um, the broader society. So, I, you know, I, I think there, there has to be that element for each individual man that there's, there is an individual aspect to things. But obviously the, you know, the, the, the idea of being having privilege and entitlement, which I also think is, is incredibly complex because there's, I think there's a promise. We're, we're kind of promised that we're going to get to make, we're going to have power in our lives. What happens when we feel like we don't? And who do we project that onto? And I, I think a lot of the men we work with project that onto their partners and their family members. Um, you know, this promise of privilege and then an entitlement. And violence goes then from a choice, it becomes a right. And I think that's a really interesting kind of exploration that I'm kind of moving towards is this promise of entitlement and promise of what comes with it. And what happens when we don't get that? Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the men we work with are quite marginalised. They have their own experience of abuse. You know, I, I remember observing a training and, and someone was talking about male entitlement and, and privilege and, you know, how all men have it. And there was a, a, you know, a First Nations man stood up and he said, well, I was removed from my family at a very young age and this has been my experience. Are you going to tell me that I have privilege and entitlement? And it was a really... Um, it was a really interesting kind of thing for us to kind of go, wow, of course, you know, it's not, it's not simple. But what often happens, I guess, in family violence is that men display it in their family. They feel like they are entitled with their families um, to have that entitlement in those moments and to, to use that privilege to not have to feel the way they feel, all those types of things. Sometimes it can be a simplistic view of violence as a choice. And if you, if, you know, we, we then talk about entitlement and privilege. If you are entitled to make those decisions in your family, if you are entitled, then is it a choice? You know, it, it's, it becomes a right. I, I am entitled to do this. It's not actually a choice because there's no alternative if you're entitled in your privilege without a whole lot of self-awareness and self-understanding, there's not, you know, that's, I think that's one of the tricky things as well when we kind of explain it and we explore it with the men we work with is, you know, we want to simplify it by saying, well, just choose to be different or choose to act differently. But entitlement and privilege makes it incredibly hard to make a different choice. And that's, that's I guess, the challenge for us in the work. We've spoken you know, about a range of things, I guess, and different ways of seeing people and um, different ways that we, in trying to accompany men on journeys and support men, the journey of change can actually reinforce 
attitudes that enable violence and damage that relationship and perhaps get in the way of change. In in your experience, you know, when working with men and maybe you've you've done something or something has happened that's gotten in the way of um, the kind of relationship you're wanting to create mm. or impacted trust, what does repairing those relationships look like? I think acknowledging what's happened is, is incredibly important. You know, what what has happened, that that's probably my approach more than anything. That's a starting point is to let's talk about what happened then. But also chances are it's been me that's breached something in that relationship or that expectation. Hopefully I've been really transparent about it, but, you know, chances are I've, I've said something or done something wrong and I need to own that myself and accept that I have potentially um, damaged that trust. But there's a, there's a parallel process here, isn't there, because it's, you know, the men want, often want to make, the, the men we work with, they want to make amends and they, they want to repair their relationship. So how do I demonstrate how I might repair that in my own work with them. And it is, I can't fix it. I'm not going to be able to fix it. The only way, the only thing I can do is talk about it. How did that make you feel? You know, that, you know, explore the kind of dynamic of that. But accept that that's potentially going to be there. We're not just going to be able to move on from that. And that that's a reality. And the same, I guess, for their own, you know, a lot of the men who go through programs, they get towards the end and they they talk about this idea of making amends, you know, and I've apologised, you know, what else am I supposed to do? Well, the only thing you can do is not be violent and abusive, be attentive, be supportive, be available emotionally. You can't make amends, I think. Um, I it's it's one of those things. I don't know how you do it apart from not doing what you did to breach that trust in the first place. But if you keep breaching that trust, it doesn't matter, does it? You're never going to make amends for it. It's not about actions or activities in that moment. It's about how am I going to be in this relationship with the client in a trusting way, and hopefully over time that'll that'll um, build. But it might never get better. And I need to be able to accept that as well. So, and the men we're working with, no matter what they do in their relationship, no matter how much change they make, that relationship might never be able to recover from their use of violence and abuse. And they need to be able to accept that. You can't make amends for some of the things that have that have happened in the past. And it's not about your behaviour and it's not about well, it is about your behaviour in the past, but it's not about your new behaviour. Is not going to fix that. It's what the other person's experienced and whether they're ever going to be ready to, to forgive. And they may not, and that is absolutely up to them and that is absolutely okay. So many parallel processes in our work. I find it fascinating. There's so many parallel processes. And this is why I think the work is so incredible too, so much um, self-reflection that we practitioners need to be doing all the time really yeah so this will be our last question because we've taken quite a bit of your time Scott we see a lot of service sector work um, and experiences that could strengthen the way we approach working with people who've caused harm in communities so a bunch of the stuff Arnie and I do is outside of the context of the service sector and we were wondering what are some of the learnings that have changed the way 
that you have challenging conversations or think about change in your own life, with your friendships, um, your community, and you're thinking about shifting gendered attitudes with men in the community and, and more broadly as well. I've seen a lot of campaigns over the years that are just a little bit ineffectual <laughs> um, because they're often, they're often government ones and governments are not necessarily accountable um, in a whole range of ways either. The most important thing is that we demonstrate those values in the way we're working with all people. You know, what are we wanting to see from men who, who cause harm? What are we wanting to see from men in the broader community? Well, we need to live it, but we need to kind of demonstrate it in our, in our everyday being. It's this kind of the risk is we go into this, this finger-pointing thing of you need to do X, Y, and Z, you need to do it as if, I, as if I don't need to do it myself, you know, because you're different to me and you've caused harm, therefore you're now on the fringes and you're something different to the rest of us. I don't think, you know, that's kind of been one of the learnings for me and, and, and I, I, I hope that I demonstrate that in my life. I'm sure there's times I don't. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by people who are pretty good at reminding me if I don't, <laughs> um, which is a, an incredible gift, you know. So that's one of the things I, I see a real challenge for us as, as a society, as a, as a community, is not, not polarised views. Is It's more about people not listening um, and, the, and the dialogue and the, and the communication is, feels really, really problematic at the moment where we're so polarized we're polarized politically and, and in a whole range of spaces but then we're also we're not able to talk and listen and accept feedback and listen to other people's perspectives about our ourselves and our lives and I think for me you know being able to hear other people's experience of me and not get defensive about that and to not kind of step away from that and avoid that but to be able to sit with with hearing that in my own vulnerability in that space has been important an important journey for me. But I, I, I suspect it's there's something in that for a lot of people. You know, having done a little bit of primary prevention work, I really believe that you know when you talk about good practice in men's behaviour change, I think it's really applicable to the broader community. Um, and to, to supporting change in men's attitudes across community, to work in a similar way, to listen with compassion, to walk with them through, through change, to not other them through that process, to hear and um, hopefully be heard yourself as well throughout that. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a big question, but it's, I feel like the work in, in this space has really helped me in my, on my own journey around my own privilege and entitlement, my own, what I wouldn't reflect on myself as violent or abusive, but perhaps controlling at times and perhaps abusive, you know, perhaps racist, perhaps sexist, all those types of things, you know, working with men through their own processes being a, a journey for myself. So I think that's the other thing that this work gives us all is the journey we go on with them and that we're in that together in a relationship. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for talking with us. Yeah, just really um, have appreciated hearing your thoughts and 
perspective about um, these kinds of values in this work. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. And we'll end the show with You Sank My Battleship by This Is My Fist. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.